0: It's good to be with you this morning. How many of you heard the fireworks last night? Did I? I don't know. I think they were heard all over Toledo. The the, uh, the display was, we finally learned, at the quarry. But I I want to move to the quarry, don't you guys? You should see the video that I was sent of the display they had last night. It put Watervilles to shame. (laughs) So... I am going to ask David Hubler to stand and ask God to be with us this morning, both in Sunday school and in worship. Amen, thank you, David. We've talked about Reformation being something that corrects, that goes on chronically within the life of the church, that often Reformation brings about consequences that are unforeseen, and there. Um, my, my cousin was a helicopter pilot in World War in uh, Vietnam, and uh, he was a good writer, and he wrote a thing about learning to fly a helicopter. And I, some of you may have done that, I know. Um, Leah's father flew a helicopter for years. I don't know if he's here. I know also Robert Forney does. Some of you may actually do that, but what my cousin wrote, he, uh, he ended up being an attorney and he, was, he wrote a really fascinating description of learning to fly in tiny little bubble helicopters and he said these little helicopters they'd send them out and he said that the, the, if they were really good as pilots and he got to the point where he could do this they'd go out in this tiny little helicopter which you have the cyclic or cyclic as it pronounced, the control, which is very, very hard to to, to run. And uh, that in this tiny little helicopter, you could just shift your weight and kind of keep the thing hovering. And you had to hover. And they were teaching you how to hover. And so by shifting weight, and that would allow you to free up your hands to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> and so he said, if you're really good, you could smoke a cigarette and in the little one. But he said that in... In learning to fly a helicopter, the the difficult thing was not knowing where to turn the cyclic or the cyclic, whatever it is, but actually anticipating where you needed to go. Because he said, whenever you were thinking about it, you were already too late and you were overcorrecting. And so the, the helicopter, he said the first two months, month and a half, two months of training, everyone was just lurching constantly until they got this sense of of equilibrium and that sense of equilibrium was anticipating what their action would be what both what was going on and where their action and so he said learning to fly was actually learning not to overcorrect but learning to just softly touch just ahead of time the uh, we don't get that kind of practice with reformation we don't get to see um the effects, sometimes it takes decades, sometimes centuries, for the effects of perhaps what is an overcorrection, and not just perhaps an overcorrection by the person who's at the center of the Reformation, but by the students and the followers and the heirs. And so one of the great reformers was Calvin, but you know there's such a thing as hyper-Calvinism, which says that we don't preach the gospel, we don't call people because God is elect. Uh, uh, God elects, God is sovereign. And, and Calvin would never have said that, but his heirs have said that. And so there's a constant need to recognize that Reformation needs Reformation. But though we'll talk about Luther and the Reformation needing Reformation today of what was begun by Luther, I unless we understand the immense incredible glory of this man and what he did we may as well not talk at all about the need to correct in some areas or where he may slightly have been wrong of course everyone is wrong (laughs) I was telling the a group of men yesterday that early in the years of Christ the word there was a young man who attended who loved to to tell me that I was wrong and uh, he, t- he took every opportunity he could to tell me how wrong I was, very humbly. <laughs> and, uh, and finally, he said to me one day, he said, David, it must be hard being a pastor, knowing you're supposed to speak the truth, but knowing you're constantly making mistakes and saying what's wrong. <laughs> and I, I looked at him and I said, I said, you know, it's true i make many mistakes but i want to tell you something paul i never make a mistake i'm never wrong and he looked at me and i said because when i'm wrong god is still with me and i correct and i am never wrong and he was i I mean he left shortly after that and i kind of wanted him to but you know because it had gone on for a couple years at that point it was hopeless it's one of those situations where you're not going to win And so, um, Martin Luther was wrong, but he was never wrong. He committed many sins, but there have been few greater individuals in the whole history of the universe than Martin Luther, okay? And I want to be absolutely clear on that. Lived from 1483 to 1546, which means that the key events of his life took place largely um, in his late 20s to late 30s. By the time of the, the Diet of Worms, which, as I recall, took place in 1521. Uh, 1521, am I right? right, 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 right yeah. 1521 or 23? 15. Uh-huh. uh-huh. 1521, I'm right. By the time 1521, when he was, when he was uh, put under the, the ban of the emperor, he was how well, old? 38. From that point on, his course was set. He, was, he, he fleshed out what he'd begun. But by 1521, his course was set. His theology had been formed. It was fleshed out. But I'm saying, you know, The 40s are the years you put your life together and surge. But if you're not doing it in the late 20s and 30s, you have not found your calling. And you need to say to God, let me make my life worth something. Let me not waste these formative years. So Luther, in his 20s, changed from going to law school and becoming an attorney, but because of that lightning storm... Decided that, you know, lightning storm came down and he prayed and vowed, Saint Anne, if you, for, if you preserve me, I'll become a monk. So he goes and becomes a monk. But he's, um, he is a monk of the Augustinian order. It's a very conservative, very uh, staunchly, it's, it's a good order. And he bec- it's following Augustine. And uh, he becomes a monk in that order. And they recognize his value. They, they, they send him to Rome as a junior representative of the order to the Pope. And he goes to Rome, and I showed you the pictures last week of of that stairway, this young monk walking up these stairs, praying for the release from purgatory of his grandfather. At the end, at the top, as he recounts it, saying, I don't know if that'll work, but I did it. You know, our father on each step, kneeling. He comes back from Rome and the, the, the head of the, of the order, Staupitz, his confessor, says, you're going to go to Erfurt and you're going to become a doctor of theology. And so he goes and he, he receives his doctorate. He becomes a doctor of theology. And, uh, and as a doctor of theology, he is then transferred to the Augustinian house at Wittenberg. That's in 1511. He's transferred to the Augustinian house at Wittenberg. He becomes a doctor of theology in 1512. And in 1513, he begins lecturing on the Psalms, all right? Begins lecturing on the Psalms. So 1513, he's 30 years old. He's lecturing on the Psalms. He does this twice during his period of, of teaching. He is a monk, okay? He's a member of the order. He's also ordained as a priest. He celebrates the sacraments. And so he is the pastor of the the castle church in Wittenberg, which is the famous church with the doors. I don't know if he's a senior pastor. I don't know how it works, but he is there. He is there as a pastor. So in in this period of his life, he is... He is lecturing on the Psalms, and we have students who wrote down what he said. A lot of, of Luther's collected works are what are called table talk, or things that the students who sat with him later in life wrote down that he said at his dining. Whenever he spoke, they were writing down the things he said. That would, that would kill many of you, wouldn't it? You know, if there were a, a complete record of everything you ever said. Um, but his students were writing it down, And he came to, uh, he came to Psalm 71. Get your Bibles and turn to Psalm 71, all right? I have this quote, and it bothers me. I don't know if I can find it right now. I had it a minute ago. Psalm 71, in you, O Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. And rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation. You have given which I may continually come. You have given me commandment to save me. For you're my rock, my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and the ruthless man. For you're my hope. O Lord, you're my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Okay. Um. Continues on, my enemies have spoken against me, O oh God, verse 12, do not be far from me, O oh my God, hasten to my help, let those who are my adversaries be covered with shame and dishonor, it's for me I hope continually in you, verse 15, my, my mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long, okay? He's, he's getting to this and the students are writing it down and he says, that righteousness... That he is speaking of, which is continued. That theme then becomes, I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. Verse 16, I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. Okay, God alone is righteousness, right? Um, but of, he's going to tell of your righteousness, your salvation. Your righteousness, your salvation are married in verse 15. In, but it's God's. Verse 16, I will come with the mighty deeds. I'll make mention of your righteousness. Oh, God, you've taught me from my youth. I'll declare your wondrous deeds, verse, uh, your power to all who are to come, verse 19. For your righteousness, oh, God, to the heavens, you who have done great things. Oh, God, who is like you, you have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp, even with your truth, even your truth. Oh, my God, do you all sing praises? My lips shall shout for joy. Alright, my tongue, verse twenty-four, also will utter your righteousness all day long. Luther is teaching this, and he says this righteousness can be understood as the righteousness of God by which He justifies the sinner. Then he says, or it can also be understood. I'm paraphrasing, but I because I'm not going to find the quote, but I'm pretty doing a pretty good job. He he says, or it may also be conceived as the righteousness by which God judges. Now do you understand the, what's the term for the dichotomy there? On the one hand he says it may be conceived as the righteousness by which God grants us justification. In other words it's imparted to us or it may also be conceived as the righteousness by which God judges. The latter, the idea that it's the righteousness by which God judges was what everyone understood that righteousness to be. At that point in time, not Augustine, but everyone in Germany, everyone under the Pope, the righteousness of God is there, and you are here. And Luther had had lived in fear and dread of that, but he's coming to understand that God's righteousness is our salvation, like that verse marries them. And so he begins to he begins to, to introduce into his teaching this idea, and it's evident. In 1513, well before the events that we know as the Reformation are really taking place, he begins to introduce into his teaching the idea that God's righteousness becomes ours. And that is our salvation. And so Luther continues on. At some point during these years, Luther comes across what he calls his his cloa, uh, his Cloa realization. Cloa means bathroom, and it was, some people think it means literally the bathroom, but it was a, a monastic term for, you know, like when you're doing your, just going about your work, you know. Uh, it's it's a, a, an idiom, a monastic idiom. It really doesn't mean on the toilet. Um, Cloa, probably from closet, you know, the water closet or the, you know. Um, and he's, he is, he's reading Romans. And he reads Romans 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, and then quoting Habakkuk, but the righteous man shall live, by, and he has this Life-altering realization, which he says was the moment that he, he came on fire. In his later autobiography, near the end of his life, he says this is the Kloa experience. He says, it came to me that it is the righteousness of God and that our work is faith. And that we come to it by faith and it's not our earning it. And finally he has convincing proof. He is convinced himself that the idea of merits, of the church owning merits, of indulgences, of all the apparatus by which the Pope held people in bondage and exerted influence over all the kingdoms of the world, that that is fallacious. And he is on fire and he starts preaching that salvation is not you being righteous, but God righteously justifying you by his righteousness in Christ. And that is the fundamental realization that all of us must have, that we are wicked sinners. Original sin was taught by Augustine. It's not new. It wasn't a Lutheran conception, that we are wicked, depraved sinners, and that God picks us up out of bondage to sin and makes us righteous. Now, out of this flow, so many things, so many thoughts. But let me just say to you, if you have tasted the salvation of God, if you know what it is to be set free from sin, then you know what Luther went through. You know this experience. You know what it is to say, God lifted me. God did something. If I could have done this, <laughs> I'd have done it long ago. You right? yeah. <laughs> This is something beyond man. I remember Tim Spielek, is he here? Talking years ago about wanting to tell all his family when he came to salvation about, um, about what God had done. He said it was so awesome. And he just could not believe that people would not seek this thing that he had just gone through that was so awesome. This is salvation. And I hope every single one of you has had a great salvation. That you know it's not you, that you know it's the will of God. That you know that God is the source of your righteousness. That everything you have is from God. So Luther goes through this, all right. And having gone through this, he's the pastor of this church. Here's Wittenberg, Lucas chronic. You know, it's a painting of Luke. Uh, I think on the left is the. Uh, I think that's oh, oh this is the uh, this thing here, is the the chap the chapel or the uh, the 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 castle church that he's the pastor at, um. Here and so Luther is is reveling in this knowledge of what God has done in his life and the glory of, of Christ and the gospel, and a guy named uh, Tetzel, what was his first name? Johann. Everyone was Johann. I don't know. Um. Tetzel comes to town. He's, a, I think, a, a Dominican friar, monk, and he's an especially effective preacher uh, of, of indulgences. He's going around and he's basically a guy selling salvation. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic, you're going to say, David, he's selling indulgences. Those are, those, are, those are released from purgatory and from venial sin. They're not mortal. You've got to go to the mass and do penance for for mortal sin this only releases you from venial but of course Luther's a pastor and he knows that the people are sitting there and saying look I've been baptized I go to mass I do auricular confession I oral confession I do these things but I still feel the weight of God's you know like he did of God's wrath I am not free and so when the when the Tetzel comes to town the monk comes to town offering plenary Uh, indulgence release from all your sins everything you ever do wow i can be i can be secure they're not thinking purgatory they're thinking this weight of guilt this this knowledge that things are not right between me and god that is the the situation of everyone who is unsaved and so tetzel comes to town and people are flocking plenary indulgence you can have it all forgiven, and Luther at this point takes a step that is, he takes two steps in 1517. The first is he does his 97 theses. How many of you have heard of them? The 97? <laughs> yeah. The 97 was in February of 2017 when Luther put 97 theses down on the, this, the evil of scholasticism, which was marrying the, the Bible to Aristotelian logic, which was the whole theological play of his time. It could justify anything. Once you married the Bible to logic, you could extrapolate. You understand? And at some point, you come to purgatory and you come to indulgences and you come to all sorts of craziness, right? It's not in the Bible, but we marry the Bible to logic and we end up there. And so the scholastics, I talked about them some last week, were enemies of Luther. Well, I don't know if they'd say they were enemies of Luther. Luther was certainly an enemy of them. And he he wrote 97 theses and it didn't attract a scintilla of attention. No one paid the slightest attention to it. And it it may have been after that, somewhere around the time, that Tetzel comes to town and Luther says, okay. And he, he puts down his 95 theses. He writes them. Those are the famous ones. He puts them down and he nails them to the door of the church. Now that nailing to the door of the church was not an uncommon thing. It was a way that, it was a way that, uh, yeah, like Twitter today, you know, it was a way of making something public, right? You know, community bulletin board, something like that. There is the door of the church, Okay. Um, he nails them there, and these, the 95, set the world aflame. 97 didn't do a thing. But six months later, he does the 95, and it is absolutely a revolution. You remember, things are primed, the tinder's there, the, the wood is dry, everything, you know, the, the overreach of the papacy, the wealth. The immorality of the church, all these things, everyone knows. Everyone everywhere knows it. Everyone also knows that the papacy is dominated by southern interests, and he's living in the north, you know, and that the southern interests always trump because the pope's always from the south and supportive from the south, and he supports the emperors from the south, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick's to the north of where Charles, who's elected at some point during this as, as the emperor of the whole empire, uh, you know, and so, there's these constant. Political factions, there are the, the money issues with the, the, the papal taxation and the wealth of the church. There is the immorality. So all this tinder is there. And if you want to think of a fire getting started by a spark, it's the 95 theses that, are, that were nailed to this door. You, know you can see there's a fence in front of it now. Um, that is the church that he did that at here are those doors now in 18 something the door the, the doors burned i don't think the whole church the doors burned that he actually nailed those to, and so in wittenberg they recreated the doors out of i think bronze or steel but i think it's bronze and uh <laughs> and they actually wrote the 95 theses on them so that's if, what you would see if you went there today you'd see the 95 theses and the first one and the most famous one is what Yeah, he begins with repentance. When the, our Lord said that we should repent, he meant that all of life. It's not just the before the Pope and at certain times and in certain ways. All of life is to be repentance. Is all of your life repentance? Do you wake up and say, God, forgive me and, and give me greater strength? This is Luther. This is, this is an awesome, awesome guy. All right, 95 theses. And... And immediately there's reaction. And uh, there is the desire to debate them. 1517, the 95 theses are pounded onto the, onto the door. In 1518, at a meeting of his order in Heidelberg, he defends his theology. In October of 18, he appears before a cardinal, the leading cardinal, Cajetan, but he refuses to recant. In December of that year, um, Frederick, the king, remember I showed you a picture of him, Frederick protects him from being handed over to Rome. He says, "No, we have rights in this kingdom. We're not going to just hand him over to Rome." So in 1519, there is a debate organized in Leipzig between Luther and a former friend named John Eck, another Johann, at Leipzig. And at that debate, a friend of Luther's named Karlstadt says, don't debate, I'll debate for you. And Eck says, yeah, let him debate. Um, Karlstadt will defend your views And I'm not sure the reason for this, I probably could have found it out, but it had something to do with, with, I don't remember why, Uh, but initially it was going to be Karlstadt debating Eck, Luther's going to be there and helping Karlstadt. Um, Karlstadt says, whatever you do, don't go too far. Don't impugn the papacy. Don't, you know, say the Pope isn't the Pope. So they get to Leipzig. Karlstadt is kind of wins at some points, is losing at others. And Luther says, I got to do it. And he he stands up. And there's an account of it. And it says that Luther... (sighs) Oh, it's this beautiful account. It talks about Luther and his forcefulness and his ability to talk. And it says, it was an eyewitness. And it, and they said, and, and Luther, whenever he was not talking but was listening, he would walk. And even when he was talking, he would stop at times. And he had a bouquet of flowers, and he'd smell it at this great debate. On the way to the debate, a knight, a German knight, had gone before him on his horse, saying, "We defend Luther." Students from, from uh, Wittenberg had gone. They had armed themselves with staves and swords. They were prepared to fight for Luther. The other side had come with swords. It was a tense situation. Luther's in there smelling the flowers. And I'm sure, I, I mean, no one knows why. It's just a famous thing that he's sitting there. Remember this? And he's smelling the flowers. And i have convinced it's to keep himself from losing his cool. But Eck is kind of a formidable debater. And he gets Luther to admit that John Huss, now we're going back, how many of you remember our talking about John Huss, 100 years before this? John Huss, the bohemian, uh, who was put to death, who had been been promised safe passage by the emperor to the the council in Constance, Switzerland. Uh, John Eck went there, under that promise was, was arraigned was charged, was held in prison, and then burned at the stake. All right? So when Luther goes to this thing, uh, Huss has been condemned, excommunicated, he's been burned at the stake. Hussism is, is evil. And Eck maneuvers Luther into acknowledging that he agrees with Huss. And at that point, he also has to say, if he agrees with Huss, that H. Council of the church can be wrong because it was a council at Constance that condemned Huss a hundred years before. You understand? Am I making sense? So he's he's maneuvered into admitting that he thinks councils can err. Well, that's part of the the, the, the doctrine of the, the, the Roman Catholic Church that its councils can't err. And then from that it's just a little step to saying that the Pope can err. You understand? And so he leaves Leipzig having said that the, the Pope, and it, it finally he says, okay, I can't defend it. I'm not going to pretend the papacy is not established in the Bible. It is not of God, right? And so he's not going to p- pussyfoot around. He's going he's to say what needs to be said. That's what he does at Leipzig. Well, that lights a fire. The next year, the, the Pope issues what is known as oh here's here's luther's tomb inside that church okay here is frederick the third the elector frederick the wise so the pope issues what's known as exerge domine what does it mean it's a papal bull which means a pronouncement from the the cathedral it means rise up O lord Raise means against. Raise, okay? It's a bulla contra arrow. What does that mean? Against error. Against error. Uh, in regard to Martini Lutheri. Okay? And it is formally titled Exerge Domine. And what is it? It's a statement that Luther is a heretic he has been found a heretic by the pope he is excommunicated by the church and of course the pope says i don't have the power of the sword that's given to the the civilian authorities but emperor it's time to kill him and the the emperors always did what the pope said right so huss 100 years before was declared excommunicated and a heretic by the by the Pope, the council, and then they turned them over to the civil authority and they burned them at the stake. All right? Luther, during this period, he's given 60 days to recant, or the, the, it's taken into effect. He writes three documents. One is a uh, document that's known as two addressed to the Christian nobility. And in that document that he writes during this period, he urges the rulers of the state to take up the necessary reform of the church into their own hands, and he argues that every Christian is a priest and there are no priests who lord it over and have the power over the body of Christ. So he's just going, okay, it's war and he writes this and he calls on the civil authority to reform the church if the church won't reform itself. Now that has lingering repercussions because you can see this is pushing back in the other direction you know the the controversy over who gets to appoint and who gets to rule the church is this is pushing it back towards and it does become one of the One of the things, the repercussions of Luther's life, he follows that train, he vacillates, but he follows that train at various points, including when people want to go further in the Reformation, he sides with the kings, and it's the reason why Luther isn't, died. But at this point, he wrote, and who's to say he was wrong to call on the civil authorities to rise up? It does seem that every place that the civil authorities did what Luther said, the church had a renaissance, a revival, an awakening. England under Henry VIII, he wasn't a good man. Frederick III seems to have been a much better guy, but everywhere that the, the, the civil authorities stood, the, the Protestant church was established and God blessed the world through, through Luther and the Protestant church. So there's a new emperor elected during this. He's a young guy, his name is Charles. Oh, in the second one, this is another, the Babylonian captivity of the church, he begins by saying that there are only really two sacraments. Initially, he's willing to grant penance, but then he excludes it. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he declares that the papacy has brought the church into a captivity, like Israel in Babylon, by its view of the sacraments. And he, he writes that the Babylonian captivity has three 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 walls of captivity around the church. And the first is the declaration that the priest has the ability to turn transubstantiation, to turn the the elements into the body and blood. And therefore, only a priest can do it. Only a priest has the power. You must go to the priest for this, this, which is essential to your salvation. He says, nonsense. He says, we deny transubstantiation. The second wall... That he attacked was the denial, and I'm getting these confused, and I'm not even sure, of the cup to the laity. Lay people were never allowed, and that continued until recently. Some of you may have grown up in a Catholic church that didn't allow you to have the cup. I know when I was a kid, Catholics, most of them had never tasted the cup. Oh, that's only, that's so precious, the blood of Christ, that we don't let you, you know, take it or spill it or treat it casually. So therefore, we're not going to let you have it. And the third wall of the Babylonian captivity was like this. It was another offense. And he writes these three things during this period. Uh, And then the new emperor says, well, we've got to put him to death. But Frederick says, and Frederick had collaborated to bring this guy into power. Frederick said, whoa! We have rights in Germany. And one of those is no person is put under the ban without first being given the right to defend himself. And we're not going to do this. So the young emperor with the older prince under him, but a powerful prince, says, all right, we're going to hold a diet, which is it's the same meaning as Reichstag. It's a parliament. It's the people coming together to make decisions with their ruler, the king. And he says, we're going to hold a diet at Worms. Okay, this is Wittenberg, where Luther pounded in the door. This is Erfurt, where he went to university. This is Warburg Castle, which will come into play in a minute. This is Augsburg, way down the line. And this is Worms. So he goes from Wittenberg, he's called to go to Worms. Frederick says I will protect you, to Luther. People say to Luther, don't go, man. You know what they did to John Huss a century ago. Don't go. Luther says, I'm going to go. He says, if I'm given the right, I'm going to go. Diet of worms held in the spring of 1521. Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, never been in Germany before. He lived in Spain. Calls this Reichstag, this parliamentary diet meeting in order to know the German princes and a matter that needs to be dealt with during it is this matter of Luther that the Pope is pushing him to resolve. Luther leaves Wittenberg to attend the Diet, convinced he's finally going to get the hearing that he had requested when he would, this began in 1517. Um, all along the way, he's treated like a conquering hero. People come out to see him. The Germans love Luther. His, what his writings and everything have become just the talk of Germany during these years, these four years. He has become the man. So he goes there. He's awed to see that Emperor Charles V is there himself, surrounded by all his advisors, all the royal panoply, all the princes of the realm, all the, all the, the yeomen of the chief cities in the midst of this. There was a table piled up with books. He was asked, have you written these books by another Eck? There are a lot of Johns and there a lot of Eck's. It's not the same Eck, but his prosecutor at this trial was a man named Eck. And he was said, is there any part of them that you wish to recant? And he says, I didn't come to be, you know, and he's told on the way there by the, uh, the head of protocol and you are not to answer anything. You're not to say anything or answer anything but the questions you're giving. Nothing but a yes or no or the answer that you're asked to give. So he comes there and he says, do you recant? Here are your books, Luther. Do you recant? And he's taken aback by it. And he says, well, this is important stuff. I mean, we're dealing with, he doesn't say it like that. He says, we're dealing with God and his word. Give me time. I must think. And so they say, okay, come back tomorrow. He says, the salvation of souls are at stake. Give me time, I beg you. In his quarters that night, he wrote, so long as Christ is merciful, I will not recant a single jot or tittle. Next day at the diet, they delayed his return until late in the day in the evening. Candlelight was going on. He was asked again, will you defend these books altogether? or do you wish to recant some of what you said? Luther replied with a short speech, apologizing for his lack of knowledge of etiquette of the court and, and expressing his, his, uh, his respect for the court. He asked to be able to give it in Latin. I think they re- declined it. It says here he repeated it in Latin, but that's, that's not the case. And then he says, look, I've got three kinds of books in this stack that you have here. There are first books about the Bible, which, which no one here disagrees with. If I recanted those books, I'd be recanting what we all agree on, and I can't recant that. He said, second, there are books in this in which I have attacked the papacy and to retract these would be to encourage tyranny and then third he said there are some of these books in which I have attacked individuals and I have done wrong in my speaking about them I have not been charitable and I would like to say that I am sorry for that but as I still believe the truth of those books I will not recant those either so no I find in all three areas those we all agree on those that specifically oppose the pope and his harms and those in which I've argued and I've argued with individuals in the end I can't recant. And so he's urged who are you? What right do you have to stand against the entire history and tradition of the church and our empire? The examiner declared, look, you've, you've given an unclear answer. Give me a simple, clear, and proper answer. Will you recant or will you not? And Luther says... He was permitted to finish his speech, but after he'd been asked for a response, quote, without loops and holes, you know, like three different varieties of books, this is what the emperor and the empire got out of Luther. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, unless I'm convinced by what? The testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither pope nor councils alone, for it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and even contradicted themselves. He says, you know that councils have said the very opposite thing. That can't be true and that can't be of God. He says, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither pope nor councils alone, as it's clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God, thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. And out of that flowed this church. In your lives let me tell you so he was declared under the ban Frederick said you promised and I'm gonna make certain that he has freedom to return to Wittenberg on the way back to Wittenberg he's riding along and a group of what appear to be highwaymen come up and capture the party But it's actually knights who are operating under the aegis, the authority of Frederick. They take him to Marburg Castle, uh, Wartburg Castle. They take him to the castle. They shut him up inside there. And it's for his safekeeping. This Frederick was quite a man. And during his months there, he's known as Sir something, or I can't remember what was, his knightly name, the alias he went under. But he's known as Sir, and he's, he, he, his hair grows, and he's, he's pretending to be a knight. And it's during those months that he translated the Bible into German, because he said everyone needs the Bible. So I didn't get as far as I wanted to this morning. And so I'm I'm going to have to delay the second part of this till next week. The character of this man. I commend this book to you. There are two or three books that are invaluable. But on Luther, Heiko Obermann, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. Ah, fantastic, fantastic book. Also, this book that Luther writes and we're going to come to next week, um, The Bondage of the Will, which is his magnum opus. It is the great work of Luther. And it is logic, biblical, godly logic on fire. You'll never have read a man in full arguing for the glory of God in the way <laughs> you'll find it in this book in your life. It's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And it, it hits the keystone of the Reformation. The keystone of Lutheranism of the Reformation is that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign and that all is from god and that is essential. I want to talk about some objections to Luther and things that people don't like about Luther and I know some of you said, well he's anti-semitic. Well, he's anti-semitic, he's anti papalist he's anti-muslim, he's anti-many things. And so are you. And there're some ways in which he may have erred, but probably what you've heard is half false, okay? Some of the things that you've heard about Luther are just lies about what he said or editing did you read about the governor in Wisconsin who changed, has the right to change letters and words in a in in ex- expenditure bills? So they had an expenditure bill that was 2023 to 2024, and uh some words for school increases. It, it mandated a a yearly increase of a certain amount. Well, the governor, by this creative editing of rearranging letters and uh Excising certain words made it that this increase was to go until 2424. He just cut out letters and remade it. You understand? That's kind of the thing that goes on with Luther in many ways. And I I urge you, read the actual thing. If you want to read what Luther said, I've got his complete works on my computer. Okay? So, uh, Kevin, would you close us with prayer? Thank you, thank you, Kevin. Thank you for your attention. It's a joy teaching you. Have a good week.